Thanks for downloading This Is US Sustainability from the US Sustainability Alliance, which represents nearly 2.6 million farmers, foresters, and fishermen across the United States. My name is Russell Goldsmith, and on this episode, we are focusing on the vital role of forests as a solution to climate change. Joining me online, firstly from the University of Massachusetts, is Paul Catanzaro. Paul is a professor and state extension forester in the Department of Environmental Conservation and is co-director of the Family Forest Research Centre. Then from the University of Vermont, we have Professor Tony D'Amato, Director of the Forest Programme and Director of the UVM Research Forests. And I should add that uh, Paul and Tony recently published a paper to help forest owners and managers consider how their forest management strategy affects the carbon within their forest and therefore the forest's ability to mitigate climate change. And I'm sure we'll uh, come on to that a little bit later. We also have on the call Tim Stout. Tim is also based in Vermont in uh, Shrewsbury, where he has a 175-acre farm. He is also principal at Northam Forest Carbon, whose mission is to bring carbon storage and sequestration to local landowners. Thank you so much all for joining me. Paul, let's come to you first. Set the scene for us. We're talking about forests today. How much of the US is made up of forests and, and how does the East Coast, where you're based, how does that compare to the rest of the country? More than half of the United States is forested. And, and as you imply, there are some differences with forest types uh, over that large amount of area. And there are also some significant differences in the ownership pattern that we see across the United States. So out in the Western United States, uh, based on the settlement pattern of, of, of our country and our history, much of or most of the forests out in the West are large government-owned parcels. But out here in the eastern United States from the Mississippi East, we have mostly privately owned forests. And and of those privately owned forests, most of those are what we refer to as family forests. So they're owned by private individuals and and married couples and, and families. So our forest cover in the Northeast, where we are located, is about 70%, about 70% of the New England states or the northeastern part of our country is forested. And a majority of that land is in private ownership. So we have, for example, in the state that they're in in Vermont is is probably close to 60%. In in, in Massachusetts, it's probably closer to 70%. So the tremendous amount of essential public benefits that we receive uh, as a society, as a public, largely come from these these family forests. And so reaching these landowners and, and helping them make good informed decisions about their forests and its future and stewardship are critical to ensuring the continued flow of those benefits. Tony, can you tell us a little bit more about the role that forests play in, in uh, climate change? Yeah, sure. And I, and I think it's, it's really a, a great time in that I'd say that more broadly than ever, people are valuing forests and, and I think climate change and the role that they can play in mitigating and then hopefully allowing us to as a society kind of adapt and cope with these changes has heightened just awareness across you know all all walks of life and and so why that's the case is, is that when we look at forests relative to any other type of land use whether it's agricultural land use front front yards uh, you know urban centers there's nothing better on land for for carbon and in particular uh, when we look at trees and what they do and all of us learned this many years ago i think my sixth grade son is now going through this with photosynthesis in his classes um, that trees take in carbon dioxide, which is obviously something we you know, have always had in our atmosphere, but have increased the concentration of through burning fossil fuels and other activities that really has contributed to an increased concentration of greenhouse gases and global warming. And so as trees take that in uh, through, through that process, they integrate that carbon into their wood, 
into their roots, into their leaves, and really gain mass of kind of growing it large and some, you know, as large as sequoias or some of the large eucalyptus that you might find in, in Australia. And so that that above ground mass of trees really is, is carbon. You know, 50% of that on average is carbon. And so trees really serve an important function of both removing that carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, but also storing it um, in these carbon pools um, on, on, on land. And so as people now are looking at the impacts of you know, climate change and certainly what's driving that, there's a real urgency to both get as much carbon as we can out of the atmosphere, but also keep as much carbon as we can out of the atmosphere. And so store as much as we can in these forests. And so the challenge with that is that forests, you know, deal with the carbon cycle different ways. And so I mentioned one thing, you know, taking carbon out of the atmosphere. And so the term we use for that is sequestration. So basically that active removal of carbon from the atmosphere by trees and integration into their, their structures, like their branches and their, and their, and their trunks. And so, you know, forests that are younger and, and growing very rapidly are often sequestering at a much higher rate than an older forest. At the same time, those trees are smaller, so they don't have as much carbon in them. And so we don't think of those as being as good a situation for carbon storage. And instead, we look at the big old forests as being great for storing carbon. And so there's, there's a lot of nuance in terms of what forest conditions are best for, for climate. And in many cases, it's a mix of both young and old and diverse across the landscape. And so to kind of go to my original point, it's fantastic that there's just this enthusiasm around forests. You know, they're amazing and they've always been doing this, you know, but now we actually value it. But the key is making sure that we're you know, understanding the science behind it and developing strategies that really are rewarding practices and approaches that are best for that, that carbon benefit from our forests. Paul, what's the makeup of old and younger forests in, in the region where you are? Well, based on our land use, you know, we have a very similar land use across the Northeast. And that was upon uh, settlement by colonists, you know, much of most of the landscape was actually cleared for agriculture. So, you know, uh, we would have seen you know, the clearing of of most of our forests, probably down to 30%, you know, so we would have reduced our forests roughly, you know, and, and of course it varies by specific region, but but about 70%. And, and this is a, a really amazing story. You know, our forests have really rebounded from, from being largely pasture lands across the Northeast back to, you know, this high forest level of 70%. So we would have seen, you know, this, this huge shift if you would have been around in 1850 in New England, you would have stood on a hill and, and sort of looked out over mostly pasture and you'd be able to see very far. Today, it's it's mostly forested. The good news is it's mostly forested and it's a real homage to the resilience of our forests. The downside is that our forests are very much very similar. In other words, they all grew up, you know, they all rebounded around the same time. So that gives them a very similar species composition. It gives them a very similar, what we call structure or the size of trees and distribution of trees. And that makes them more vulnerable to things, to certain disturbances. Um, you know, natural disturbances affect different part of the forest. So if we get a disturbance that affects our forests, which are roughly around a hundred years old, if we get a disturbance that can affect those hundred year old forests, we'd be in trouble because we've got lots of 100 year old forests. So to Tony's point, you know, having this mix across the landscape of some young forests and some older forests is is very beneficial. That's really interesting stuff. Tony, just coming back to you for a second, I mentioned in the intro that yourself and Paul had collaborated on this paper aimed at, at the forest landowners. Obviously, I want to get Tim into the conversation very quickly, but can you just explain some of the work that, that you guys do to reach and educate landowners about climate change? Yeah, I think I was really fortunate. I, I went to 
graduate school in the Pacific Northwest out, out in Oregon. As, and as Paul mentioned, where, where public land really is the dominant and or also a large um, private ownership by you know, industry where you might have you know hundreds of thousands of acres that are administered by a single organization. And so if you come up with some scientific solution that suggests this is how you should manage the forest, you really need to connect to just some of those larger public landowners and some of the larger private landowners. And I, and I was really fortunate when I came back to do my PhD, I, I landed at University of Massachusetts, which is where David Kittredge, who is a real mentor to both myself and Paul on, on many fronts, was working. And, and, and Dave really devoted his career to understanding family forest owners and kind of their, their, their behaviors and what really drove how they approached the landscape. And so it really was an eye-opener to me that all these ideas that I thought were so great and could be applied to like any ownership, all of a sudden I stepped into a state where there's over a hundred thousand individuals that are making decisions about their land. And, and so quickly was alerted to the value of trying to translate some of these ideas to the, to the landscapes that are relevant and to the ownerships that are relevant, which are family forest owners. And so Paul and I um, have been able to partner. And again, it's because I, I really recognize just the strength and value in what Paul and others do in connecting with family forest owners and taking a lot of these ideas that might make a lot of sense in a in the ivory tower of university, or again, you know, could easily be done by a large ownership and really trying to get it to the people that are making the impact and decision. And so um, we partnered a long time ago um, on some old growth restoration work, which was being proposed for big federal land ownerships in the West. How do we translate that down um, to family forest owners in the Northeast? And and since then, I've really just had a great collaboration and 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 really, I think, have some some different views of the forest from kind of our own disciplinary strengths, but really have some shared values and I think a shared cause that we want to inform and, and give some objective, um, reasonable guidance for both foresters and landowners in the region. So it's been awesome to work with Paul and 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 really try to crack a, a challenging dynamic. You know, a lot of a lot of people, a lot of different opinions that are tied behind that ownership. How do we how do we reach them? And and so working with Paul has been a great way to try to do that. Let's bring um, our landowner into the uh, into the conversation. Tim's been uh, sitting there very patiently for the last ten or so minutes. Tim, tell us a little bit about the makeup of of your land and, and what you're doing there. I managed about 175 acres. It's an old farm, and we've maintained it for wildlife, for all sorts of different reasons, landowner objectives. But I see my role is taking what Paul and Tony do, and uh, bringing it to landowners and applying it on my land. So my focus throughout my career, a large part has been on climate change. I look at our land and I say, all right, what's going to be here in 60 years? If my grandkids going to be able to enjoy this the way I have, and is it going to be, be as meaningful? So I apply a lot of what Tony and Paul have put together, a lot of it. And I uh, do all sorts of outreach across the, the state on, on forest carbon, uh, how to integrate that into other land management objectives landowners may, may have, do lots of field trips on our property and meet with various groups, conservation commissions, nonprofit organizations, water districts, and so forth to explain what the connection is. I think an advantage I have is I've managed this land for 45 years. I've seen it evolve over time. I've seen the climate impacts. I've worked with people on adaptation strategies, and I'm particularly enthused right now about getting the message out about forest carbon. And 
almost everyone. We had about 200 people through our property over the last two years. And almost everyone gets gets the message on forest carbon that this is a very effective way if we maintain our forests and manage them for the long term, it can have a huge impact on mitigating climate change. And a great story I was sharing with Tony and Paul was they had a, a young family on the property a couple of months ago, and their daughter, who was 12, was, you know, loved the field trip and understood forest carbon. And at one point I mentioned climate change. And she suddenly went from being a, a smiley child to looking at her mom and freezing. And I looked at her mom and she goes, yes, Tim, Sarah's got great concern and anxiety over climate change at the age of 12. And my heart just dropped. And I said, well, you know, Sarah, look, look all around you. What do you see? And she goes, well, I see trees. And I say, look all over this town of Shrewsbury. What do you see? And she goes, I see trees. And I said, they're almost the, if not the most effective way to tackle climate change. So the more we can get this message out, the more you can talk to your, your classmates, talk to your teachers, we've got to get this message out. So we do under some wonderful generosity from, from Tony and, and Paul. We've done a, a number of different projects here on planting trees. Tony was able to secure 50 American chestnuts for us. We're planting oak trees, a bunch of climate resilient trees. We've done some carbon thinning or thinning for, for with carbon in mind. We're managing our forests so that we have greater diversity and species and in age, it goes on from there. But I really see my core mission. I was an executive at a utility for 30 years and running efficiency and renewable energy programs. And this is kind of my next chapter is to get the message out to other landowners. Tim, you just mentioned climate resilient trees, just for the benefit of some of our listeners that may not be aware of what, what they, they are. Do you, can you just expand on that a little bit? Wow, you're putting me on the spot. Since the, <laughs> the, the guru on this, on this is, is Tony. Since we can Tony pass. Provided. We can pass it to Tony. <laughs> oh no! Well, let me try, Tony, and correct me. Um, so there, there are trees that are not here right now, in general, and that are further south that we expect to migrate up to this region. And so, what we're looking at is what's called assisted migration if we can kind of jumpstart it. So all over our property, we have pods of these climate resilient trees that we think will survive. And that's the reason I planted them and under Tony's assistance is, are these trees gonna live here? And you know, to, to Tony's credit, they've all done extremely well. Every year we'll plant more of them, but our hope is that we can integrate those trees into the existing forest that we have, so that as some of our trees fade out, we have these new species that are living here. And this is a, a way to prove that this is an effective way to advance the forest that we have. And you, you touched on, you know, the fact that the work that, that they do help, you know, obviously um, kind of helps you quite a bit. But in, in terms of when you're doing your outreach does it add that much credibility as well to have guys like Tony and, and Paul on board? 
Yeah, very much so, because Tony and, and Paul have put together a number of reports over a number of, of years that, in my view, are really geared toward landowners. Um, they take a very complex subject like forest carbon, and there wasn't until they wrote their report, there was no easy guide to forest carbon that a landowner could easily grasp. That's not to say that they're not capable of grasping it, but they've got so many other things in their lives that they're dealing with. I've probably distributed, as Paul uh, well, <laughs> well knows, probably 400 of those reports. And I'm very selective in who I give them to now because I don't want to dwindle Paul's supply. But the keep giving them out, Tim. We've got plenty. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, people love Paul and, and Tony's materials. And so they're my point is they're they're very well known. And you know, I, I think most landowners know who Paul and Tony are. And I see my my role as you know, getting that out to people. And the response is is great. It's very encouraging. People don't have to spend a whole lot of time, but they get it. We should um, probably tell our listeners where they can find this, these, these if there's any left. <laughs> where, where, where can our listeners go to get a copy of that? You can go to masswoods.org and um, you can find both our, our forest carbon publication, our forest resiliency. We just came out with our new uh, Restoring Old Growth Characteristics publication so all of that can be found on masswoods.org brilliant it's you know clear that you guys obviously have a very good relationship uh with each other but um tony what, what are some of the challenges you know that, that you might face when speaking to other landowners in the region and, and what are the big issues that you're talking to them about yeah i think the the biggest challenge is just the number which then means there's a, just a tremendous diversity and again there's a lot of great research that's been done by the family forest research center and, and others you know with paul and, and brett butler dave kittridge for years prior on just why do people value their land anyway kind of and what motivates them to do certain things and and so that's this tremendous diversity of of just why people have forest land and how they connect with it and, and so Landowners like Tim that are amazingly engaged, clearly has a scientific and inquisitive mind, you know, I think a long family history of stewardship on that land. There are some immediate touch points that we can connect with a landowner like Tim. Um, and, and, and to his credit, you know, Tim, I first met by writing us, you know, for, you know, he was in, wanted information. And, and, and so that I think is the extreme case where landowners are seeking out guidance. But more often than not, you're really trying to connect to those landowners either directly or through um, people that have influence um, in the community, whether it's the consultant foresters. So some of the language that we have in our, our books is actually designed to give that forester that might actually work with that landowner the language and even just the understanding of what might be some options for that landowner or working with, we have state officials who also kind of intersect. So our, we have county foresters in Vermont or extension foresters or, or service foresters that their role is to both give guidance to those landowners, but also, um, you know, provide you know the opportunities for education and and and, and reaching um, across these new issues. And it's interesting when, when when Paul and I first were working on the the managing for for resilience, so thinking about managing for for climate change. You know, some of our discussions were well. You know, many people might not be there yet in terms of thinking about changes to their forests, and so as a direct effect of climate. And and what we decided upon was well, you know, I think everyone can acknowledge that there wasn't. This invasive plant in their region. There wasn't this much deer browse. All these other things that have changed, whether they want to, you know, accept that it's because of 
changing climate or other things, just trying to make sure that we can have a message that resonates with a wide range of, of perspectives and, and, and worldviews when we're talking about things. And so hopefully um, have something in our, in our documents that, that most landowners can latch onto. But we really rely a lot on people like Tim and, and as I mentioned, those you know, foresters to be the amplifier of the message and, and try to try to reach those populations. You know, I, it strikes me that um, that the three of us represent a you know an important sort of continuum, if you will. That the the information is based on its credibility, and that credibility must have a couple of a couple of facets to it. The first is, you know, people want to, and and, and for good reason, they want to see it grounded in in good rigorous science. And you know, Tony is nationally known for the research he does on applied forest ecology and silviculture to address you know the many challenges that we face, including climate change. And he has a tremendous sort of insight in terms of what those management questions are out on the ground. And I think that's a real compliment to him that that many in, in the ivory tower don't necessarily have. And so he has a good sense of that and has shaped his research program around that. So, so Tony is generating some great research. My job is to understand how landowners are, are getting information, how they're digesting it, what information they need to make decisions, what their challenges are. And so, you know, it's a great partnership with, with Tony and I, because I, we sort of understand each other's language and we sort of complement. So that's sort of another step on the continuum. But I'm pleased to hear that those publications have been helpful. But I would suggest that even with those publications, the sort of final step to, to really informing these landowner decisions, and, and maybe the most important step in some ways, is, is Tim Stout. And, and that is that that other facet of credibility is having a peer, a neighbor, a family member, someone with experience, uh, someone that, that talks the same language, someone that shares the same values, has made similar decisions. Those are all really incredibly important aspects of, of the credibility of the information. So, so having Tim talk to his neighbors or hosting a woods walk or, or um, talking to an organization about what's really you know, complex issues that people might be hearing, frankly, you know, misinformation about. They're getting it you know, from all different sides. Being able to have some time with Tim, a neighbor, a peer, and exchange information in, in a way that they understand is just huge. So, it, you know, it, it, in some ways, it's that continuum, you know, Tony generating the information and, and me helping with the communication piece and distilling it. And then, you know, Tim being able to, to reach out to his neighbors. And, and as we said, there are, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of, of landowners and, and, you know, owning a range of, of land from you know, anywhere from a couple acres or 10 acres up to hundreds of acres, you know, would be sort of a, a common spread of, of ownership sizes. You can imagine that, you know, for even a couple or even 10 or a couple dozen professionals to, to reach all those is, is very difficult. So working with landowners, working with community opinion leaders like Tim is not only efficient, but it's also the most effective way to help inform those decisions. What's the typical makeup, uh, you know, like age bracket of landowners. Yeah, I'm really happy you mentioned this. The numbers we get from landowner surveys all across the country are incredibly consistent. There is an aging demographic of landowners and the average age is approaching 65 years old. So we in the United States are actually um, at the point of the, the largest intergenerational transfer of land that, that our country has ever seen. And so the decisions that these current landowners make about what will happen to their land when they pass away will 
largely shape the public benefits that we receive in the future. So will they take their 100 acres and give a third of it to each child? And now instead of 100 acres, we're dealing with three 33 acre parcels. And instead of one landowner, we're dealing with three and you can multiply that across the landscape and the complexity becomes, you know, really uh, uh, greater. Will they keep their forest as forest? You know, perhaps, you know, perhaps the greatest thing that we can do for climate change mitigation is, you know, keep just step one. Let's keep our forest. Will they keep their forest as forest or will they sell it as house lots and, and you know, change it from forest cover to, to houses and yards and things? So it's incredibly important. It's essential to maintain, you know, the forest cover we have. And that means working with landowners uh, like Tim and others to help inform their decisions about what their conservation options are for their land. Tim, do, do those issues resonate with your peers, people that you're speaking to on a daily basis? Yeah, very, very much so. And they resonate directly with me on our property here because I have 175 and my uncle has another 220 acres. And he gradually sold off parts of his, his land for financial reasons. And when he had a financial crisis in his family, he would take a field and and um, one of them is now a huge gravel pit. And it kind of breaks our heart. But the other side of it is he needed the money. And so landowners are constantly up against these challenges of the other other things going on in their lives that may result in them having to sacrifice their their land against all their best desires. It's just a matter matter of fact. So I run into this all the time here in Shrewsbury and local towns. Well, you know, we don't want to lock up our land because of this reason. We really want to count on the land for for harvests. And there are all sorts of, of factors. And so one of the strategies which Paul and Tony have heard numerous times, and I'm I'm a little out there on the edge on this one, but often when I meet with landowners, I take my drone and I photograph their land. I've never had anyone say this is useless. They look at it and they see what's on their land from a totally different perspective. And then you can easily show, you know, here's this stand of trees. Those trees don't look particularly healthy. You know, we could do some planting here. It gives them a different way of thinking about their land. And um, I'm hoping that foresters in Vermont will use drones more for that purpose. Uh, they're all, you know, the issue is all fraught with lots of complications. But um, I think it's getting landowners just to see what they have. Again, not having time to dive into it. I can go out and meet with them for an hour yeah. and leave them with the photographs and um, with recommendations that have to be supported by a licensed forester, which I am not. Um, but there are all sorts of challenges for, for landowners. And just bringing it back to the, the theme of the conversation, which we said right at the top, I mean, how many times in those conversations that you're having with them, does the topic of climate change come up? You know, how much do they care about about climate change? Much, much more now than I'd say three years ago. And I think most of that is because of all the environmental crises we had due to climate change this last summer and last six months. 
I think it was, and, and longer than that, but I think it was a perhaps a wake-up call to a lot of people that this is not, you know, not something off in the distance. This is immediate. We have to act on it immediately. And Tony, I believe, is the one who mentioned invasive species. I see properties around our house where the invasive plants are have taken over an entire property. We have a very rigid plan for how we manage invasives on our property so that they don't get out of hand. But that that takes a lot of time. It costs a lot of money. So, you know, again, people tie that to climate change. Why do we get to have all these new invasives and new ones every single year? And, you know, the invasive plants, the invasive insects, there are lots of factors, these droughts and then heavy per- precipitation bursts that cause massive erosion. It just goes on from there where you they can immediately wonder, why is this happening now? Mm. And that makes them think more about climate change. Paul, in your experience, do landowners care about climate change? You know, is it, is it a big part of the decision-making process for them? My experience is similar to Tim's. You know, I, I think this was on our radar as academics and researchers, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And, you know, private landowners, family forest owners have lives. You know, they have their own professional jobs. They've got families. They've got vacations. They're dealing with their own challenges in their personal life and their own joys. And so it's not on the front of most of their minds, I think, 10 or 15 years ago. I think, as Tim said, increasingly so as we start you know watching the news and, and watching the you know the increase in in frequency and intensity of, of storms and hurricanes and and droughts I think people can't help but to you know start tying that back to their own experience in their own land and you know as Tony said earlier if there is a glass is half full moment or perspective that is that that more people are now turning towards forests with the recognition that, wow, forests are really, you know, amazing at, at mitigating climate change. It's sequestering it and storing it in, in its various pools. So I think more people are aware, more landowners, of the, the crucial role their forest plays in mitigating climate change. And these other uh, 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 challenges, you know, we're focused on climate change here. As Tony alluded to, that there really is a, a complex of challenges from invasive plants and insects to climate change, uh, to and those are ecological, of course, but but frankly, you know, this intergenerational land transfer and, and forest conversion, they sort of all feed on each other and can add up to some some pretty negative consequences. So I think people are recognizing that in greater greater amounts. Listen, this has been a really fascinating uh, discussion. I just want to finish with one quick thought from each of you. You know, clearly you're all very passionate about the importance that, that um, you know, the important role that forests have to play, you know, as we deal with climate change. What's the one thing you'd like listeners to take away from this episode? I'm going to come to each of you. Tim, let's start with you. Probably to me, the most important thing is for them to be able to observe their forests and understand clearly that the, the role they can play in mitigating climate change. And that when you look at a mountain and you look at all the trees between where you're standing and that tip peak of the mountain, all those trees are an enormous carbon sink and they're absorbing lots of lots and lots of carbon and storing lots and lots of carbon and looking at that and saying, all right, that's pulling carbon dioxide that would otherwise be in the atmosphere for decades, it's pulling it into the trees and preventing the earth from warming even more. So 
I think that that gives people hope that they themselves are having an impact by managing their forest. Tony? You know, as I mentioned, it's it's been a great time to appreciate one of the many things that forests provide. And, and I think sometimes we we often then start to forget that we we use a ton of like wood from forests as well. Um, and it's this amazing renewable resource that has been obviously the cornerstone of cultures and societies, you know, since, since the beginning of, of civilization. And so, you know, when we think about concepts of, you know, think global, act local, you know, climate change is a, is a global issue, but so is the resource use we have and kind of the demands we place on global forests. And so when people are thinking about, you know, using forests as a natural climate solution, really factoring in, you know, how a change in behavior in the name of carbon, which might include possibly no longer harvesting trees from an area, how if we don't also change how much demand we put globally on um, forests for forest products, we might actually have what we can call sometimes undesirable leakage of the impacts elsewhere, you know, kind of. And, and so as a region uh, of the, the country and really a region of the globe where we, we're quite affluent relative to other places, we can afford to pay for wood from, from Oregon or from Indonesia um, or, or, you know, from Finland that we want to make sure that we're still localizing some of that consumption and production so that we're kind of owning some of that impact and also getting a lot of benefits from kind of managed working for us for how many of these values we're talking about. And so I feel like when we get into carbon, sometimes it means we're no longer going to cut trees anymore, but if we're still using wood, somebody's cutting them somewhere. And so I think we need to be good global citizens in this conversation and number, number one, reduce our consumption, but also think a little bit about how our local actions might impact what other people are experiencing in other parts of the globe and country. Paul, you get the final word. Keep forests as forests. You know, there's just a tremendous uh, amount of, of value. And I, these aren't niceties. I mean, we're talking about things like clean water, biodiversity, spiritual renewal, wood products, you know, climate change mitigation. These aren't things that are, you know, are nice add-ons. These are essential core human needs and our forests provide them. And so we, we need to keep forests as forests and we need to support those that, that own those forests to make sure that you know they have the information and resources that they can uh, that they need to steward them and, and make the right decisions. Tim Stout, Tony D'Amato, Paul Catanzaro, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to uh, This is US Sustainability. If you want to find out more about the US Sustainability Alliance, please visit the website, which is thesustainabilityalliance.us, where you'll find plenty more information on all the topics we've discussed in this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app. And if you've enjoyed the show, please do give us a positive rating and review. But for now, from me, Russell Goldsmith, thanks for listening and goodbye.